Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. I'm glad you are here. Uh, I think God has been uh, dealing with my heart this weekend uh, and crushing the idolatry of Auburn football uh, and sanctifying me deeply. I've given up. We're going to lose many games this year. So, uh, but it's, it's good to see all of you. Glad you're with us. We started a series last week on the seven deadly sins and Last week I set up our series by talking about what is sin, why we're looking at the seven deadly sins, and then lastly we looked at the foundational sin, which leads to all of the seven, which is the sin of pride. And so over the next seven weeks, we we're going we're to be looking at one sin each week, and this morning we're going to deal with the sin of envy. And so I'm going to ask you to stand as we read 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 to 16. This is God's word to us this morning. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even a sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Isaiah 40 tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Uh, let's pray. God, I ask that you would... Focus our minds, grip our hearts. Now as we enter into your word and would you speak to us? Holy Spirit, would you move through your word? Would you remove me? Would I who have the privilege of preaching your word get out of the way so Christ could be seen? Would you change us as a result, Lord? Would those of us who are complacent and satisfied with ourselves, would you shake us? wake us up? Would those of us here this morning who are, who are bored with you, uh, would you give us life? Would those of us this morning who are sorrowful and hurting be uh, reminded that you are with us? Those of us who are joyful and hopeful, would we be reminded and, uh, and pointed yet again that our hope is in you? God, meet us wherever we are this morning, uh, wherever we, we come into this place, and however we come into this place, and change us, we pray in your name. Amen. You can have a seat. So most of the sins that we're going to be addressing in this series have some satisfaction tied to them. 
the seven sins, seven deadly sins, or else we would not indulge them, we would not be tempted by them, but when envy is at work in us, it actually makes us quite miserable. Uh, Joseph Epstein wrote in the New York Times, of the seven deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. Surely it is the one that people are least likely to want to own up to, for to do so is to admit that one is probably ungenerous, mean, small-hearted. Many believe that envy is one of the most common of the seven deadly sins, yet it's one of the most secret and silent while being the most far-reaching of the seven. In the passage that I just read, David is a successful warrior. The people praise God. God is, uh, or the people praise David, and God is blessing David. And Saul, in verse 9, if you have it in your bulletin, it says that Saul eyes David from that day on. Saul eyes David from that day on. The first thing that I want us to look at this morning is the eyes of envy. The eyes of envy. Verse 9 could be read, Saul looked at David with envy from that day on. There's a reason that people in our culture have described envy as the green eye of envy or the evil eye of envy. They've drawn depictions of envy as eyes looking upward. The reason is that envy is rooted in our view of other people. Rooted in our view of other people. It's been said that envy is the only sin of the seven that you cannot do alone. You can lust alone, you can be gluttonous alone, but you cannot be envious alone because envy requires another person to feed off of. See, Saul sees the success, the praise that David has, and he is green with envy. Envy flows out of playing the comparison game. Envy comes from a place of competition. Envy comes from a vision of life that says it's me versus you. It's he or she but me. I must excel you. See, envy requires another person because envy is about me versus you. Not sure if you've seen, it's a little bit older of a movie now, uh, Little Miss Sunshine. Uh, at the very beginning of the movie, uh, Greg Kinnear is giving a motivational speech and Uh, to a crowd of about seven people. (laughs) And and ironically, he is speaking about being successful, right, to a crowd of seven. And he, he looks out at the seven as he's finishing his speech, and he says this, the world is made up of winners and losers. Go be a winner. And then he leaves. And it's this type of mindset that breeds envy. I'm a winner, you're a loser. I'm more worthy, you are less worthy. It's me against you. Envy cannot exist without comparison. He says, David gets more praise, and God blesses David. Saul begins to feel less than. He feels insignificant in comparison to David. See, catch this. Envy's not just about possession. It's really rooted in a sense of self-worth or lack of self-worth. So, for instance, say you're a car person, right? I don't know how many of you are car people. Uh, I'm not that much of a car person, but maybe you are. So say you see someone driving a BMW or a Mercedes. You see a BMW. Envy is not really, I need a BMW because I like a BMW. Envy is, I need a BMW because what the BMW says about me. 
See, envy is I need the BMW because once I have the BMW, it says I'm successful. It says I'm powerful. It says I've arrived. Envy is a comparison game. It is how you view yourself versus other people. And the eyes of envy always look up. See, pride, you look down. Envy, you look up. Saul sees the success, the praise of David. David's receiving more praise than Saul. David is superior to Saul at this point. So Saul looks up and he envies David. Here's another key thing about envy. People who are envying don't usually envy those who are far removed from their lives. Don't usually envy those people who are vastly uh, vastly greater or more talented and, and successful than they are. People envy people who are more like them. But people who they think are just a little bit better than they are. So follow me here. I don't envy Tiger Woods. right? I don't envy Tiger Woods because I will never play on the PGA, much less ever win a major golf tournament. He is way out of my stratosphere. I don't envy him. I admire Tiger Woods. Same way I don't envy Tim Keller or the preaching of Tony Evans. They are out of my league. I admire them, but say there's another pastor who planted a church two years ago, and their church seems to be growing a little bit more than Christ Central Church. They're making more of an impact in the city of Durham. They have more money than Christ Central. Say this pastor is getting posted on Facebook and tweeted about, I could be very much tempted to envy that person all day long. See, the the eyes of envy look towards equals. See, if you're working for a startup company, you're not going to envy the Olympic athlete who won a gold medal. You admire them, but you're not going to envy them. But if another startup company gets rave reviews and all of a sudden they get financial investments, you're going to be tempted to envy. So let me ask you some possible questions uh, of people who may be your equals that will help you maybe identify your own envy. Dads and moms, what's your reaction when another child succeeds over yours? How does it feel when another newborn baby walks before your child or talks before your child? Members of Christ Central Church, how does it feel when another person in our church gets more attention than you? Maybe they get publicly noticed before you. College students, What's your reaction when a classmate gets a better grade than you? Single people, I was here for 34 years. How do you respond when your friend starts dating or gets engaged before you? I could give example after example, but let me ask you a question and ask you to be honest with yourself. Who are you tempted to envy? Who are you tempted to envy? For whoever you're tempted to envy will reveal how you define your own identity. Because envy comes from looking at someone who is close to your equal, who you think is better, or or who is better than you. The eyes of envy. The next thing I want us to look at is the evidence of envy. As David gains success, King Saul sees him as his greatest competition. And the people of Israel are praising Saul. Saul has struck down his thousands But David gets the greater praise. David has struck down his tens tens of thousands. Verse 8 tells us that Saul is angry 
Verse 11, Saul hurls his spear at David, saying, I will pin David to the, to the wall. And he does this twice. See, envy's malicious. Envy seeks out destruction. Envy seeks to destroy the other. This is why envy's been referred to as a raging fire. Envy wants to consume its rival. You see, envy doesn't just look up. It seeks to bring what is up down. Joseph Epstein again tells a joke. He says, there is an English woman, a Frenchman, and a Russian, each given a single wish by a genie in a bottle. And he's telling this joke. He says, the English woman says that a friend of hers has a cottage in the mountains and that she would like a similar cottage, but this she would like with two additional bedrooms, an extra bathroom, have it placed on the river. It would be a little bit better than her friends. All right. The Frenchman says that his best friend is dating a, a, a beautiful blonde girl, and he would like actually a redhead uh, who is very into culture, and she's chic, and she's, she's just cool. And then the Russian, when asked, tells the genie about one of his neighbors that has this cow that gives vast amount of quantity of the richest milk that makes the purest butter in all of the land. And the Russian says, I want that cow. Dead. <laughs> Dead. Right? That's bad, bad Russian accent. Sorry. Um, but the difference between jealousy and envy is that envy seeks to destroy its competition. Frederick Buechner wrote, Envy's trademark is to desire that everyone be as unsuccessful as you are. In verse 2, Saul sees David's success and invites David into his own home. And David continues to have success and envy grows in Saul to the point where it's a full-scale hatred. And the goal is to now kill and murder David. The The tricky thing about envy is that it can be slow And it can silently eat you up from the inside out until the point that you're outraged and you're set on destruction. Let me help you think a little bit more practically of evidences that envy is at work in you. Are you offended by the talents and successes or good fortune of another person? Do you ever take pleasure at other people's difficulties? Be honest. Do you ever read false motives into another person's behavior? Let me give you a big way that our culture and even Christian community seeks to destroy others. Gossip. Why do you think our culture is obsessed with gossip columns and tabloid TV? There's something that we love about seeing someone who is superior and famous take a fall and get brought down and destroyed. Gossip and slander it can start off very subtly with a comment here and a comment there. It can be like Saul and bring David into your house, have your rival close to you, offer some half-hearted faint praises, and then behind their backs, as envy rages, you begin to speak more harshly and with greater judgment. And the aim is to bring that person down. So it can start with, well, I heard so-and-so did this. And then it can build to, can you believe so-and-so? Did that? To, I can't stand so-and-so. The church is a place where gossip can run rampant. It's not immune, the church is a place that's not immune to envy and gossip. It can start with a spark, and then it becomes a raging fire that destroys. Another major indicator 
and evidence of envy is when we start to blame our lot in life, our lack of or other people's possession of things on God being unjust. See, because most of us really believe that we can be whatever we want to be. Most of us really believe that if I choose to be a winner, I'm going to be a winner. I'm not going to be a loser. But then reality starts to set in, and we realize that there are some people who are just better than we are, who are smarter than we are, who are more gifted than we are. And when that happens, we feel a sense of powerlessness. We have no power to become the winner we thought we could be. And we blame it on God. Our anger and our rage can be directed toward God. God must be unjust. It's easy when envious to think, I've just been dealt a bad hand. God is unfair. See, there's some of the evidences of envy. But I want us to look and end with the enemy of envy. Not just the eyes, not the evidences, but the, the enemy of envy or the antidote to healing envy. 1 Samuel 18 has three main characters, Saul and David. Saul is the example of envy. But verses 1 to 5, we read about Jonathan, the son of Saul. And Jonathan, of all the people, should have envied David. They were more equals than Saul and David were. Jonathan was the rightful heir to the throne. People should have been looking to him to step into the leadership after his father Saul. Yet it is Saul who is full of envy. Verse 1 says, Jonathan loved David as his own. Jonathan protected David from his father, looked out for David because he loved David. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a famous passage on love, verse 4 says that love does not envy. Love by its nature cannot envy. Envy destroys love because it makes you unbelievably self-absorbed. Romans chapter 12, verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. I think that's a great definition of love. Love empathizes. If you are a loving person, you rejoice with those who are rejoicing, and you are sad when others are sad. But envy weeps when others rejoice and rejoices when others weep. Envy makes you think that everybody else's situation in life is really about your situation in life. Love is the enemy of envy. And for us to overcome envy, I believe that we need to live from a new vision of the unconditional love of God towards us that will then lead us to love others. We need a new vision, church. We need new eyes. We need to see and to behold the love of God towards us. I love Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 4. Listen to this Old Testament passage. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and i love you i give men in return for you people in exchange for your life and the lord god just didn't give people in exchange for our lives he gave his only son in exchange for our lives he took our sin 
and the death that we deserved. We are precious, loved, perfectly created, watched over, cared for. We are deeply loved, unconditionally loved. Not because of our moral worthiness, not because we're attractive, not because of our achievements, but simply because we are God's children and He loves us. You see, the Christian's self-understanding is that he or she is precious before God. However much a sinner, however much a failure, or however much of a success you think you are, however you might compare to the standards of worldly comparison, the Christian is precious to God. And the vision of God's love, it does away with self-absorption. Ego-driven, glory-seeking, and it gives us with that incredible self-confidence. I, I, could, I know this can be overused in sermons, but I'm, I've got to use it. I'm sorry, there are a few things like it. So when our son Henry was born, Rachel was a champ in labor and in delivery. She was incredible. Henry came out into this world crying. He was, he was beet red. He was actually covered in merconium, which is his own poop. Covered in his own poop. Doctors cleaned him off, wrapped him in a blanket, He had done nothing but been in the womb of Rachel for nine months. And then Rachel and I get to hold our little man. Get to look at him, we get to marvel at the beauty, get to notice everything about him and take him in, and the joy, the smile, and the love that we felt. It's hard to describe. God loves us that much, but more. God loves us that way. God's love is the antithesis to envy. God's love is non-comparative and unconditional. Jesus loves us because He loves us. Jesus called us and redeemed us because He loves us. Not because of our performance, not because of any special qualities that we think we possess. Jesus loves us. He loves the outcast and the marginalized, the low and the least of these. And understanding this love And having a vision of God's love towards us will kill envy. And it will cause us to become what Jesus preaches about in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, what he says should be true of the Christian. Matthew 5, verse 4 in the Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. To the virtue that will begin to characterize our lives when we're putting to death envy with a new vision of God's love, is mourning. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Mourning. See, mourning is deep humility. It's a brokenness and a heart-crushing grief over our own sin and over our own undeservedness of God's love and grace towards us. Envy is the desire to have life my way. But if you live life long enough that way, which... I know I have. You will always get to the place where you're disappointed. Because sometimes life just doesn't make sense. Many times we don't get what we think we deserve. But when humility and mourning come into our hearts, we stop envying others. Because we've owned up to the fact that we don't deserve anything anyway. Envy weeps at those who celebrate, and it celebrates at those who weep, but mourning weeps with those who weep and rejoices with those who rejoice. Envy is self-centered. Mourning is other-centered compassion. 
Mourning comes as we understand that we have everything we need in the love of God towards us. The Christian need not envy because we lack nothing. See, the obvious major application this morning is that we need to understand and we need to believe the love of God towards us. And we need to live life with this new vision. But as I said last week, one of the things that excites me most about this series is that we're going to have spiritual practices that we address every week. Spiritual practices and rhythms that will help shape and form us. And so this morning, I want to give you two spiritual practices that I think will help aid us in producing love for others and killing envy within our own hearts. As I've already stated many times this morning, envy sees the world as a great competition. There are winners and there are losers. That's it. Winners and losers. So here's the first practice or action that you can do to help remedy envy in your heart. Invest yourselves deliberately and deeply in activities with others that have shared common goods. Say that again. Invest yourself deliberately and deeply in activities with others that have shared common goods. Now, what do I mean by a common good? A common good is something that when one person increases in having it, does not diminish the other person's ability to have it as well. So for an example, music is a common good. If I start listening to music and I start collecting certain music, that does not diminish anyone else's ability to collect the same music and listen to the same music. Hiking is a common good. If I go hike the Eno River, that does not affect anyone else's ability to hike the Eno River. Uh, if If we eat a meal together, that's a common good. If we go to Centerfest or the Phoenix Fest, That's a common good. A common good is something in which no one loses and no one wins. So invest yourself with others deliberately and deeply in these types of activities. Share these experiences and common goods with other people. Because here's the benefit. The benefit of doing this is that we will then learn how to do things with others without the threat of one person losing and the other person winning. It teaches us how to share life and common goods without a competitive frame of mind. And the Lord knows I need help in that area deeply. Here's the second spiritual activity. Do little acts of love for people without being noticed, recognized, or seen. Do little acts of love without being noticed. The secrecy and the hiddenness of loving this way helps eliminate any competitiveness or temptation to have others see us in a certain way, which then leads us to viewing our self-worth by how people view us. So think of ways that you can love people around you in small ways. It doesn't have to be big ways, small ways, without people seeing you. Take a meal to someone who's in need. Write a note to somebody. Drop by unexpectedly and visit someone just to encourage them. And possibly be mindful to do this with people you envy most. Acts of love in this way will build a wall against envy creeping in. It will enable you to view people as people and not as competitors. The gospel of the Lord Jesus is the thing that we all need most. Our envy has to be replaced with the fullness of Christ's love towards us. Our vision of the world has to be through the lenses of God's unfailing love to us. 
If we can remember and if we can believe how high and how wide and how deep the love of God is towards us, we then will be people who love others and envy will slowly die. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would root out the envy. And Lord, uh, as we will see every week, Lord, we're guilty of each of these sins. No one in here is not, not guilty of envying. And so would you allow us to see and be honest with how much it, it really runs deep and maybe kept in secret? And would you bring it to the light of your love that can dispel the darkness of envy? Would we see your love towards us? Would, would that be what we see and view others through the vision of your love towards us? Give us new eyes, Lord God, hearts to love because of your love towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. I love this meal that we get to partake of every week because this is a shared meal. There are no winners and losers at this table this morning. It's a meal that we experience together as a community, and we experience the non-comparative, unconditional love of God in Christ. In this meal, we can confess that we often look up to other people and we seek to destroy them. And then we rejoice that our God was willing to send His Son down and be destroyed for us so that we might be loved. This table reminds us and it cultivates a new vision. Every week we come back and we, we, we regain appropriate vision. We see clearly that you are precious, that I am precious, and that we're delighted in and we're rejoiced over that God loves us because he loves us. If you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here this morning and we hope you keep coming back to Christ Central and we hope you're honest about where you are. But this is a meal for those who identify as a Christian. And if you're not at a place where you identify as a follower of Christ, it doesn't make sense to, to be a part of a Christian meal. But you can participate in two ways this morning. You can come down and make this motion and we would love to say a prayer for you uh, and pray over you. Uh, or you're welcome to remain in your pews and think about what's been said this morning. But if you trust Jesus, if you look to him, though you struggle, though you're, you're envious, though you gossip and you slander, this is a meal for those who can confess we're weak, but God is strong. And that his grace is sufficient in our weakness, and we see clearly yet again. And so I'm going to uh, release those of you who have children. You can go and, and pick them up in children's church or in nursery and bring them down with your family. We'd love to say a prayer for your children uh, as they come down. Ushers are going to let you out row by row, so uh, look for that as they come and, and release you. There is red wine, white grape juice, gluten-free bread, uh, as well as regular bread. Uh, and you can come down and you can receive uh, either as a family or with friends, by yourself, however you want to receive this morning. Uh, you're welcome to do that and partake up front and then head back to your, to your seats. So I'm going to ask those who are serving to come down and then I'm going to pray for us. So come on down, those who are serving. Lord God, we, we thank you that every Sunday you give us a clearer picture of what's true and what's real. Though we feel unlovely, though, Lord, we are envious and we don't love others the way we should, 
Lord, your love is unconditional. You welcome us back yet again this morning. And you say you love us. You delight in us. You rejoice over us. And God, that love is what we need to understand and believe more than anything so that we can love those you've placed around us. So would you remind us yet again that our sins don't bar us from this table. The only thing that we need is to feel our neediness for you and you receive us with great joy and you rejoice over us and remind us yet again of who you are. We pray you bless this meal in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it, said, this is my body broken for you, eat in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup, said, this is the cup of the new covenant, it is my blood poured out, shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins, drink in remembrance of me. These are the gifts of God for the people of God, come and feast.